Welcome to the Listen, Learn, and Lead series of interviews of extraordinary leaders here at Naval Post Graduate School. Today I have the honor and the privilege of interviewing Dr. Jim Wirtz and Dr. Bob Tomlinson. Dr. Wirtz is a professor of National Security Affairs and has been with NPS since 1990 as Chair of National Security Affairs Department and served as Dean of the School of International Graduate Studies from 2008 to 2020. Dr. Tomlinson is a retired Air Force Colonel, also in the National Security Affairs Department at NPS, but is a member of the Naval War College and their staff and faculty here at NPS. Welcome. It is a delight to have you both here. Thank you. You both have extraordinary backgrounds of scholarship, uh, many schools that you have attended. I thought for our audience it would be good, though, to really get a sense about each of you. So, Dr. Wirtz, could you start with a bit about yourself? Well, you know, I grew up uh, as an Easterner on the East Coast and uh, went to a public high school. And I, as an undergrad, I went to the University of Delaware, where I uh, double majored in political science and psychology. And I stayed on for a master's degree. Uh, and then I luckily got into Columbia University and started my PhD work there. I was an Olin Fellow at Harvard University at the Center for International Affairs where I was fortunate enough to study with Samuel Huntington for a couple mm -hmm. of years. That was a great opportunity. So the rest, I guess, is we're here now. Great, thanks. Bob, your background, please. Yeah, so uh, like Jim, I'm from the East Coast. I was born and raised in New York City, uh, went to public high school, and then went to uh, college in Worcester, Massachusetts at the College of the Holy Cross. Sure. Um, during that time and the College of the Holy Cross, I was in Air Force ROTC. I graduated uh, from there, uh, commissioned a second lieutenant in the United States Air Force, and then uh, started my career in the Air Force. Not only did you graduate, though, you were a distinguished graduate there. Yes, I was. Um, Fortunate to be a distinguished graduate there. So um, after that, I uh, started my career in the Air Force, really in logistics uh, for a, a while, and then uh, became an, an aviator, a flyer. Spent most of my career in uh, flying in the airborne warning and control aircraft mm -hmm. as an air battle manager for the uh, Navy students out there, similar to uh, uh, NFO. The difference in uh, in NFO and in air battle managers, we also have ground command and control and communication systems that Air Force officers are responsible for, air battle managers. So I commanded one of those units in, in Europe, kind of like being in the Army on ground systems, and then finished off as a group commander in Alaska, responsible for uh, uh, air defense for the Alaska Norad region. Got out of the Air Force, retired, uh, worked in business for a little while, decided that that wasn't my forte, and decided to go back to school. Uh, got another master's degree. I already had one in public administration. I got a master's degree in history in uh, the modern Middle East in uh, military studies, and then uh, started on a PhD in uh, the history of the modern Middle East from Claremont Graduate University. And during that period of time, I actually taught for the Naval War College in what they call the Fleet Seminar Program. Uh, and uh, then had really the fortune to uh, have a, uh, get a, a job at the School of Advanced Military Studies. And for uh, our Army students out there, they probably know the School of SAMS. It's a premier school for Army planners. And, uh, 
I was there for six and a half years, and I actually uh, ran their uh, advanced course for senior officers for uh, similar to a war college program where I taught colonels and uh, lieutenant colonels and senior officers and had the opportunity to really travel all around the world to all the combatant commands. And I thought it gave, us a, gave me a great education about what I'm teaching now, national security affairs. Um, then had the fortune to come here to uh, NPS and work for the Naval War College. And I teach national security affairs here and I couldn't be happier. Well, that's great. So both of you, you were the scholar, Jim, when you were writing about nuclear issues and those kind of things and sure. intelligence issues. And you went back and did a lot of work in that. And Bob, your time as, as an Air Force officer, you, you began your lives in the Cold War. And now we come forward to where now where the Commandant's Planning Guidance and the CNO's uh, Navigation Plan are talking about very different things. We're no longer talking about the way of the world the way we did when we had this bipolar world of the, the Soviet Union and the United States. It had essentially now the CNO and the Commandant both talking about education, about, about uh, education and the training and thinking and, and fighting really smartly and the role of the individual thinker, decision maker. How do you both see that in, as you teach and as you're going through your own processes of learning, how, have you, how would you now see the world in terms of how we learn and understand and discern things? Well, you know, when, when I first arrived, you, could, you would pose a question to the students about deterrence, and they, they knew deterrence theory inside and out. You know, what's our job to deter war? What happens if war deters? War occurs. Oh, we failed in our jobs. It's oh no, not that anything but that. So they they really saw themselves in the peace preservation business because the alternative was almost too hard. It was the end of it all, right? Uh, today, if you stood up in front of the students and you say, you know, uh, our job is to deter war, and if we fight a war, we failed. They kind of look at you and say, you know, I don't know where you've been, but for the last twenty years, everywhere I go, they're shooting at me. So you know, literally, I've been in combat, you know, almost continuously throughout my, my career. So that whole idea of deterrence is almost alien to this generation of officers because their experience has, has, not, has not been this experience. Whereas when we were, we were young people, uh, deterrence was the buzzword of the day. And, you know, and, and Americans really are real aficionados when it comes to deterrence. We believe in deterrence. Uh, we want to use our military might so that it, to prevent war. We don't want to have to fight the war. We'd much rather uh, prevent that war from occurring in the first place. But that, since, since the end of the Cold War, and because of things like the global war on terror and 9-11, uh, and uh, events in the Middle East with the Saddam Hussein in Iraq, the invasion uh, of Kuwait, people's experience was far more uh, on the battlefield than it was during the Cold War. You know, Military experience, you know, after Vietnam, was a bit of anomaly in the U.S. military for 15, 20 years. And, you know, that's sort of the good news. Right? That was the success story. Yeah, so I'd echo that with uh, what Jim said. And uh, some real-world examples in class, I think it's great for us to have that experience because now in class I can actually talk and refer to my time in the military when things like MAD, meaning mutually assured destruction, mm -hmm. Deterrent theory was out there. Right. Things like uh, counterforce and countervalue about uh, this uh, competition or this uh, 
thing that uh, conflict, Cold War conflict with the Soviet Union, those kind of things were center to what we were doing. Um, but now we have to bring those things back. We have to talk about those ideas of deterrent theory and the fact that we have two powers that we are in great competition with. So I think it's, it's helpful to have that background. So how do you talk about deterrence theory from the Cold and bring that from the Cold War to today when uh, I was listening to Dr. Camber Warren today and he, he's really uh, terrific about, about these things and he was talking about the narrative. And he did not say this in his comments because it was much more analytically about the social the media world and, and, and how we have tribalized ourselves. But the narrative in the Cold War was pretty clear. You know, good guys, bad guys, the, uh, the, all that kind of thing. Today you ask about deterrence in a narrative, and it's a very different phenomenon. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, you know, during the Cold War, nuclear weapons are sort of at the forefront, right? And they've been pushed into the background. But you, you have to wonder, when we prefer to push them in the background, but you have to wonder if everybody else has that same thought. Will, will, will others be more willing to threaten us with nuclear weapons? Or I often, I often tell uh, students, is just because we're, we don't want to talk about nuclear weapons or threaten people with nuclear weapons, doesn't mean our opponents don't see those nuclear weapons, right? You know, it's sort of like if I had a nuclear weapon behind me right now, people would be looking at the nuclear weapon, not at me. It's the same sort of, same sort of phenomenon that Others might focus in on that capability, even though we don't want to highlight it. Uh, I also think that sometimes there's a knee-jerk reaction. If you talk about mutual assured destruction, they say, oh, that's just the Cold War. You're just some sort of dinosaur. It's like, no, 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 no. These fundamental concepts are still valid. What we really want is the students to bring them forward, to bring them into the, the new world, to bring them into these new, new uh, situations. They're the ones who are going to do the new research and apply it. So, you know, we bring the, conf the concept, let them apply it. So with that comment, Bob, from Jim, what are some of the questions that your students are asking that, that, that you see this all coming through? I think uh, the big thing for me uh, in the classroom is to really try to get the students to come out of what they've been doing for the last 20 years, which is um, really counterinsurgency, in counterterrorism mm. to think about these bigger issues that uh, sometimes um, deterrents act like uh, what Jim just talked about, that if Russia is displeased with something we do geopolitically, they will threaten us with the fact that they have nuclear weapons and they now have a doctrine to say that we might use these nuclear weapons to deter you. Uh, I think those kind of things are really important to make the students understand. It's, it's a different type of calculus than when you're trying to fight in uh, counterinsurgency and low intensity conflict. I mean, things can escalate very, very quickly. And those are the thought processes we try to take our, our students through. We, I just had a student, we, uh, he, he did an outstanding thesis on Russian hypersonic weapons. And we, and we actually uh, have the piece published in Comparative Strategy. It's going to come out in six or nine months. That's the bad news. But it's in, right? It's in the Good. pipeline. But no, the student did a great job. 
But framing it is uh, because parts of it, in his mind, didn't make a lot of sense because the Russians are really highlighting these weapons, but there isn't a whole weapon system. You know, there's, we don't know if there's a doctrine. We don't know if it's really operational. We don't know if the intelligence and reconnaissance and command and control is there for it. So why would you highlight it? Well, you know, the, the context, the Cold War context, is the Soviets liked the bluff, right? Remember the missile gap and the bomber gap? They exaggerated the capabilities. Now, it rebounded to hurt them in the long run because it spurred American defense defense planning and procurement, but they, they sort of bluffed. But it has a deterrent effect, and he, he sensed that, that this is making people very uneasy. Uh, there's a lot of concern, maybe reluctant to do certain kinds of operations. So it does have a deterrent effect. So in that way, you could see the Russian reliance on deterrence through hypersonics, uh, and he sensed it, recognized it, and uh, it was just a matter of framing it in that way, to bring back, to draw on the past to, to make the point. Admiral, I want to go back to your uh, comment about narrative, because that's very, very important uh, to me and to how we talk to our students. Narrative, I'm a historian by academic training, and so narrative ex is extremely important. And I'll frame it like this. Narrative is not only a, a, a person's or a history and culture, but it's almost like dreams and desires about what you want to do. And it's important that we tell our students and make them understand the narratives of our competitors, particularly Russia and um, China. And uh, it's not lost that we're in this room here uh, with the Yangtze River and the riverine uh, boat patrol that the United States Navy uh, was a part of for almost 100 years. And it goes to the Chinese narrative about the, the 100 years of humiliation, how they will uh, frame uh, their competition with us. And we have to make sure that our students understand that so we're able to counter that. So here I have, I have, there's a bit of, of intellectual whiplash here, okay? So on the one hand, the notion about narrative and about belief and about uh, the, the gestalt, the psyche of a people and, and how that motivates them to action. Then we have the notion of the science of things and that the hypersonics and could could change not only the physics of war, but also, frankly, the calculus of war. Mm -hmm. and, so, and so you have people listening saying, well, I have the social side, which is really, really important, and yet I have the scientific side that is really important. How, this is complex stuff. It's stuff I don't always get, and yet you want me to understand it, and I'm gonna be a decision maker in it. Help me, help me, okay? So how, how do you get through that? Well, you know, the history helps. You could read the history and think about it, right, applying it. You know, a colleague of mine, Dan Moran, just wrote a great uh, chapter on the, the effect of the torpedo in the First World War. And you, it, 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 almost, it almost made the battleship obsolete, but almost. The aircraft came along, did a better job 30 years later. But, but it had a bigger impact on the war because it, the British wanted a close blockade of Germany, couldn't do it because of the threat of the torpedo. They wanted to close and fight the German high seas fleet. Couldn't do it because of the torpedo. And then the torpedo enabled the Germans to conduct commerce raiding with the torpedo, which brought the U.S. into the war. So here you have a technology that altered, did alter the tactics, did threaten the, you know, alter the weapons, but it altered the very strategy and course and outcome of the war. Uh, you know, I don't think the airplane in World War II really had that effect. Not in the naval battle in the Pacific. If you took the airplane out and the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor with midget submarines, which they did, 
right? The U.S. Navy will, would have still marched across the Pacific with battleships. I think it would have unfolded a lot in the same way. But World War I unfolded differently because of the torpedo. It brought the U.S. into the war. And we were you know, sort of desperate to stay out. What tech, technologies today, if you look at it, it's tactical application. It's just, it maybe it'll only have a tactical effect. But boy, it could have a lot bigger effect, a strategic or political effect. And how do you estimate that in advance is very difficult. And the side who gets it right. So here at Monterey, we have the War College and we have NPS. I think that your conversations just now epitomized how you have a synergy between these two schools. Some people would say, well, how is SIGS, how is the, uh, the School for International uh, studies any different than the War College, and how is the War College any different than SIGS? Talk a little bit about that, that synergism as we talk, as we teach students. You know, I think too often NPS and the War College are framed as an either-or sort of proposition. And the truth is about 75% of the students here have get a War College, they get JPME Phase One credit, and even a War College diploma right. if they do, they do some additional coursework. And in the Department of National Security Affairs, uh, the JPME Phase One is actually it is part of the curriculum. So, you know, students at NPS take four uh, courses a quarter. Well, one of those courses, if you're in, in, in NSA, is a JPME Phase One course. So, uh, you know, it's really the War College actually helps us put out the degree here. It's it's done. We do it together. It's a it's a joint effort by the two institutions. But that doesn't get much play beyond. I think you have to know, be at NPS to see it happen. I don't, I don't think we make, we talk about that very much. Mm -hmm. It's not well known across uh, the Navy or across uh, the Defense Department. And within the uh, Naval War College classes, just think what it is to have, and I've had this in my class, an Air Force officer, a Marine officer, a Naval officer, a Special Forces officer, um, and uh, an Army officer. It's an incredible amount of synergy. All studying different backgrounds from uh, defense analysis to physics to uh, meteorology and oceanography. It's an incredible synergy in the class. And um, I, I think NPS, the Navy, and the Department of Defense are richer for that. So let me uh, jump to different topics. So you mentioned Samuel Huntington, and when I was a grad student, I studied him quite a bit actually and famously that famous book, The Clash of Civilizations. Sure. And it was always a bit about the other, you know, the Clash of Civilizations for Huntington, in my mind, was kind of always about the other. Uh, this, we, are, we are having this interview uh, in the middle of January on Martin Luther King Day and of, 20, of 2021. And last week we had a pretty jarring uh, event in our nation's capital. And for an historian, Bob, and for a keen observer, Jim, this was a this was an important time. We are a country of protests. I mean, we have, we have a history of right. protests. Some of it peaceful, some of it not. Uh, most of it, in some fashion, having an impact. What do you think? And I th and I thought about when you said Huntington. That there's also a clash of many civilizations and of and of and of the small clusters that have come about from the information age and how we all kind of now have our own, our own Twitter account, we all have our own Twitter following. Where are we in, in, in our country? Um, where are we? 
Okay, so I'll, I'll start. Uh, I've thought a lot about this, obviously, and uh, what happened last week, I think deeply should deeply affect us all. And um, I think my reflection uh, really goes back to what it is that we're really about. Um, and as a military officer and as someone who teaches uh, for the Naval War College, I remember back to my, my oath of office uh, to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And we do have this incredible document called the Constitution, you know, which gives us an opportunity to, to really perfect this union of, of what our government is. And um, it also gives us a chance to, to progress and change things. So um, I think we need to really focus up upon that and see this incident for really what it is. It's uh, people who are dis feel disenfranchised with the system, trying to move against it in a way that is not covered in the Constitution. And it's not unique for our country. I, I was reminded today that in the 60s, the Senate was, had two bombs blow up in it. And so it's how you deal with it, I think, and how you make and how you ad, advance the way forward. So Jim, Jim, you, you I'm know, curious about your Yeah, no, I, and it's, and, you know, I, I agree with everything you say, about, especially about the disenfranchised part. And that, that covers the entire political spectrum. You know, when we were when we we were young people, we worried about the, you know, the uh, disinterested voter and the choice we had between Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Remember that? Right. right. Well, there's no difference in these candidates. Why bother to vote? Uh, well, and the politics was very central because I don't know if it was. I think it was you could the ability to reach people was limited, so you had to come up with the broadest. Re, you know, the you had to get as most people with your message as you could, or else you weren't going to win anything. Here now, it seems like it's the margins. It's the far right, far left. The people on the extremes are, are driving the dialogue and supplying social media with the most inflammatory material that you could imagine. It's, no matter if you agree with it or don't agree with it, it's bound to get you mad. And that's, that's what it's really done is to get you angry, get you mad, get you mobilized until you're not thinking straight. And that's, that is just, you know... How do you know? It, 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 and how did this happen? Where did this come from? We didn't anticipate it. So let me take this to a broader issue, which is uh, the national security realm. Um, about two months ago, uh, we had a forum here uh, at NPS. Uh, thank you, Admiral, for uh, taking part in that uh, on race and national security. And we had three individuals, uh, two former ambassadors. The first. Uh, Muslim ambassador to the United States, Shirinter Kelly, uh, former ambassador to the Philippines and Zimbabwe and Bangladesh, and the first uh, commander of AFRICOM. And we talked about great power competition during that um, presentation. And part of the question that we asked is, how do we, as a diverse country, how does that give us a leg up on the competition between Russia and China. Uh, China, which is uh, about 90% ethnically Han Chinese, mm -hmm. Russia, which is about 65 or 70% ethnically uh, uh, Russian. How are we, 
as a country, which has got 16% uh, Hispanic heritage, 13% African-American uh, heritage. How does that put us when we want to go to Africa and we want to go to South America, when we want to go to Asia? That should give us a leg up, but it only does if people see us as a country that is able to accept this diversity and is able to hold on to our values, which are about democracy and the rule of law. So one of the questions I, I always ask during these interviews is your role, your view of, of leadership, and Bob, you've given some voice to that. And again, I'm thinking about the fact that even today, um, we are celebrating the birthday of Martin Luther King in this really tumultuous time and wondering what he'd be thinking and, and saying about this. But as we talk, as we go through the interview, I don't want to miss an opportunity to say, to pick up on Jim's point about leadership in a, uh, in a uh, diverse environment and yours also, how do you both define, if, if, if a young officer comes up to you and says, sir, what's a good leader? And sir, what's, you know, what's, what, how do good leaders behave, think, and decide? What would be your, your answers to, to the question about leadership? There are many types of, of leaders, okay? And there are many different leadership styles. Uh, but for me, I would distill, I, I think, three attributes that a leader has to have. First of all, I will say this, being a military leader is tough. It is not like being a leader of a business. It is not like being a leader of any other institution because the stakes are that high as a military leader. So to all of us listening to this, if you're a military leader, you have a tough job. But I would say three things that you should hold on to. The first is selflessness. And when I say that, I mean that you really have to think about others primarily more than you do yourself. America gives us their sons and their daughters, and they expect us to treasure them and take care of them in defense of the nation. And so you really have to think about that as a, as a motivation for, for you. Um, the other thing I would say is competence, that we want you to be competent in what it is that you do. Um, this is something that we focus a lot on the Naval War College, competent as a leader, but competent as a pilot, as a, a navigator, as a, a department head. You need to study your craft and be good at it because your people are depending upon you to be competent. And the last thing I would say is be ethical. That seems easy, because we talk about ethics in our class also. Um, but the higher up you go, the more you realize that um, the tougher it will be. Because ethical problems don't come at you with a big thing that's saying, hey, this is right and right. this is wrong. This is usually a very gray area. It's subtle, it's insidious. And so you always have to uh, check that. So if you have those three as your core, I think that's very helpful in being a, a good leader in the military. Yeah, I used to say that you, the, the practicing of ethics is important because the big ethical moment does not come all by itself. 
It comes, you know, in a series of small things, and then your your ability to deal with the big thing is based upon those those small acts. So the practicing of ethic is really important. Jim. Well, I've, I've never been in the military. I've seen it, seen have had a ringside seat, but no. <laughs> and I deal with academics, so there's more herding than leading, right? But, but, but if, 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 if a young officer would oh, ask you know, you have to, you know what it is, is leadership is, is not, leadership is in the moment. If you can, if you could reach out, touch someone and encourage them, you know, a few kind words could turn somebody's life around. And I've seen, I've seen it. Students all the time, you know, you said this about me, you helped me with this, you told me to do this, and they go ahead and do it, right? And, and their lives are different. So it really is in the moment, and that's something all of us all the time could really embrace, that there's always somebody who could, especially in the environment we're in now with COVID and the lockdown and the isolation, is that a few kind words can make all the difference uh, to encourage somebody, to recognize somebody who worked harder on something who would maybe otherwise just be ignored or stepped over. If you could do that, you could make a big difference. Well, we could sit here for a long time and enjoy this extraordinary conversation. It's, to have this kind of uh, relaxed environment and yet being able to talk about hard things is what we're about. And I want to thank you both thank for you. your passion as teachers, as researchers and scholars, as leaders, and as just men of dignity who are who who try to, to teach that and relay that. And that, that is part of what we do, isn't it, is that we help to, to lead by example. And I want to thank you both for doing that and for being part of this interview and really having an impact upon our students. Well, thank you. Thank you, Admiral. We're very happy to have had you here for this interview series. If these kinds of interviews are interesting to you, you're welcome to ask some follow-up questions and let us know if you want to hear from these leaders in any other capacity. We thank you for being with us and we look forward to again having you to the next Listen, Learn, and Lead series of interviews about, about Extraordinary Leaders here at Naval Postgraduate School. Thank you.